Hey, what up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, Centered from Reality Podcast. It is January 23rd. That makes it a Tuesday. Maybe I'm dating myself here, but I remember at the end of high school, I love McConan's song, Tuesday. You know, got the club going up on a Tuesday. You know that song? Well, yeah, I'm not, I've never been a fan of going to the club on a Tuesday. I don't know why I brought that up. But anyways... A lot to talk about today. I want to talk about Trump's victory in New Hampshire, which is surprising to no one, except for maybe like Chris Sununu and Nikki Haley, though I don't really think they should be surprised either. I also want to talk about gray horse events and climate change and the future of public policy. And yeah, a lot to say on that. I, I was really thinking about that the last couple days and have really prepped some talking points on that. So we'll get into that in a moment as well. I think um, we're going to see some serious issues for public policymakers and scientists involving predicting extreme weather events because basically we're seeing rare events that there's no historical precedent for. So it's going to make just the whole response to climate mitigation or adaptation, whatever side you stand on on this, going to make it significantly more difficult on a public policy side. So we're going to get into that. But first... <laughs> I um, I like to listen to Lex Friedman's podcast while I'm doing some finance work sometimes. And first off, not everyone loves Lex Friedman. I think he gets a little bit too guru-like sometimes. I don't really care when he talks about fasting for 12 hours a day and how he likes to reread Dostoevsky at night, all this type of stuff. I, I couldn't care less, bro. But... I do find that his conversations are quite fascinating most of the time. I really consider him to be a more intellectual and better version of Joe Rogan, where he'll bring on people he disagrees with, people he agrees with, and he just lets them talk, and he's a good listener, and sometimes he'll jump in. He's had everyone from, like, Joe Rogan to David Pakman. I mean, so he has a wide range. Patrick Bet David, Benjamin Netanyahu, Bernie Sanders. Like, he ranges, and I... I, I don't like all of his conversations. Some of them are a little bit too into physics and AI for me. But generally speaking, I find Lex fascinating. So anyways, he had on Destiny, who is a progressive left, eh, kind of center. I don't even know how to describe Destiny. Like kind of a rational progressive vlogger, um, political commentator. And he hosts a debate between Destiny and, of course, Ben Shapiro. And it's interesting because I actually used to really listen to Ben Shapiro almost daily, but I was telling some coworkers today, I was like, after 2019, Ben Shapiro to me kind of fell into something similar to what Ron DeSantis fell into, which was kind of this red pill, transphobic, almost homophobic, red pilled culture war and focused too much on that and not enough on facts and pragmatism and trying to actually win over moderates. And so Ben Shapiro's Daily Wire, obviously, is a complete joke now. I'm not a Republican anymore, so that's probably part of this as well. But I still find sometimes Ben Shapiro's debating skills and commentary to be interesting. So I'm going, okay, I'm going to listen to Destiny and Ben Shapiro debate education policy, <laughs> the war in Israel and Gaza, lots of light topics that are really easy to debate. But anyways, the reason I bring this up is because they were talking about education and basically private versus public education. And Ben Shapiro's like, well, he thinks the government should be a watchdog to protect some individual rights. 
Ben Shapiro still has a lot of libertarian values on that. And Destiny's talking about how, yes, but like maybe if public schools could actually give the students more resources and use taxes to actually give students more of what they desire, public schools could be just as good. And Destiny kind of gets into how there is quite a quite a discrepancy in different school districts. And, you know, some students like he was talking about his son's school in Nebraska is getting iPads by the time they're in second grade. And then other schools, the literacy rates are through the through the floor. So like they're collapsing and people are really struggling. And he's like, maybe there does need to be a better allocation of resources in public schools because you can make a public school good. And so Ben Shapiro then basically says, Technology is not important. More school lunches are not important. Air conditioning, not important. What's really important is a two-parent household. And he gets into this whole rant about how, like, you really can't fix education or the public school system without first fixing the family. And, you know, for Ben Shapiro's defense, this is something I think that he's talked about for quite some time. And, and of course, I think there's something to it. Of course, you're more likely to go to college, more likely to get married yourself, more likely to not get involved in crime, more likely to have a stable household and stable life and stable upbringing if you have a two-parent household. That is definitely true. Like having both parents involved, double incomes, the support, all of it you know, plays into it for sure. So I don't think anyone's going against that. But Destiny kind of attacks Ben Shapiro and says... Of course, like, I'm not going to argue with that, that a two-parent household and having two loving parents is obviously good for the kid, but that's not always possible. And so he, he challenges Ben Shapiro and says, like, dude, you, you're saying we can't even touch education policy until we reform the family? Well, that's just not tangible. That's not always going to be possible. And I totally agree with Destiny here. And so I got just infuriated when Ben Shapiro then goes on to say, yeah, like, it's all about the family. You can't even... Like, like that's the only way you fix education policy. And then Ben Shapiro gets into something interesting where he basically says we need to bring back shotgun weddings, which was, which was not how I was expecting to listen to something. But he basically said that shotgun weddings were good because it created a two-parent household. Like if you had a kid, then you're pretty much like forcing each other to get married and going down that road. And I was talking to a buddy about this after I listened to this because I was texting him about it. And I'm like, isn't this... An- just insane. And it's a really interesting, I think, just microscope into the mind of someone like Ben Shapiro. Like he grew up privileged. He's wealthy, very close community. He's, you know, he's part of the Orthodox Jewish community. I think he has a very tight knit group of friends and family. Like, like for him, it's easy to say that, right? But sometimes forcing a couple to get married to raise a kid is actually not good for the kid. Like you shouldn't force a couple to be in the house together. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But it's just insane to say that we should bring back shotgun weddings because it'll create a two-parent household. I think Ben misses the point that there are different forms of two-parent households. Not every two-parent household is going to be a stable, loving environment. Sometimes you want the parents not to be together. And 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 I and Destiny Ben Ben keeps kind of giving this condescending approach to Destiny, who's just like I understand your point that having two good parents raising a kid is important. But he also says, like, that's not always possible, and you can't just approach the situation so black and white. And so I I just thought this actually really summed up, I think, how disconnected Ben Shapiro is. Because it's just insane to say that you can't touch education policy unless it's on the local level, 
or it's it's about reforming the family first because I probably do not have to tell any of you guys like family is complicated and not every family is perfect. There's not a one size all approach. And I will say, I think for a long time, this has kind of been Ben Shapiro's entire narrative about crime and why the system's broken. It's not our institutions. It's not the structures. It's not governmental failures. It's the modern family needing reform. And he's not wrong all the time. He's definitely not wrong all the time. There is a cultural decline in this country, no doubt. But I think it's stupid to say that two things are mutually exclusive. Like you can't even touch education reform without first looking at the family. And then also saying that shotgun weddings should be a thing. Because look, Ben Shapiro can say what he wants, but the country is not moving in that direction. So okay, we're all, we're already way beyond the time I had allocated to this. So let's move on. But yeah, this has really got me going earlier. And actually, sorry, I'll say one more thing. Ben Shapiro does claim to be a libertarian. He's, he's more of the Rand Paul type of libertarian, which I call the faux libertarian, because he claims to be one when it comes to economics and the government's influence. But then when it comes to like social issues and individual liberties, when he disagrees with them, he is not a libertarian any longer. And this is one of those examples. Like, I don't know true libertarians. I don't think Reason Magazine would ever argue for this, that if you have, you know, sexual relations with someone, you should be forced to have a shotgun wedding if one of them ends up pregnant. That doesn't sound very libertarian to me, by the way. Forcing a couple to be married because they they conceived a child together. That's just insane to me, and it's not libertarian at all. But again, there's so many faux libertarians, especially in the Daily Wire and the Rand Paulian types and the Tucker Carlson types. They're libertarian until they don't like where the country's going, and then they're almost quite authoritarian. All right, moving on. I don't know particularly how much I have to say about this because we talked about it yesterday and I've been talking about it for weeks, probably months at this point. But New Hampshire has already been called for Donald Trump. As of the time of this recording, 7.20 on Tuesday night, 60% has been reported and Trump has gained 11 delegates. Mickey Haley has gained six delegates. Trump has 53.9% of the vote. That's 104,592 votes. We're actually up to 61% reporting now. It's changing as I speak. And Nikki Haley, 44.6%, 86,631 votes. And she gained six delegates. Ron DeSantis, uh, 0.7%. 1,295 votes, and my buddy Chris Christie, 422 votes with 0.2%. There's a button I could click to show more results. (laughs) Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, 0.1 with 248 votes. Mike Pence, 142 votes. Doug Burgum, the the wimp, I wanted to use a different word, but the wimp, uh, 57 votes. And Tim Scott, 43. I mean, look, it's pretty bad. Well, I mean, these people aren't even running anymore. But usually when you're in the single or I guess double digits in a state with over a million people, not a great vibe. But anyways, um, Nikki, okay, let's start with the cup half full. Nikki Haley didn't get destroyed by Trump as of now. Okay. As of now, she's down less than 
She's almost down by 10%, but she's not down by 10%. And New Hampshire, I think, has a demographic not totally similar to states like South Carolina or California or Michigan or Illinois or New York or Texas. Like, it's not as diverse of a state by any means is what I'm trying to get at. But that being said, politically, the country, not the country, the state is more representative of the American voting base. You have Trumpers, you have Democrats, you have independents, you have moderates, and Nikki Haley did okay, okay? Trump didn't blow her away. And what I see in this is that Trump obviously got over 50%, so he's clearly going to be the nominee for the Republican Party. He is clearly the favorite. But Nikki Haley is almost at 45%, and it shows that in a state like New Hampshire, which is pretty politically fascinating and diverse, not everyone wanted what Trump's selling. And I guess if you're Nikki Haley, you could look at that in a positive light. And if you're Trump, you're like, maybe I need to moderate before the generals, which I have heard he is going to do. But then again, the problem here is that I was watching CNN earlier and they were doing some exit polls and the exit polls showed that Nikki Haley basically got moderates, maybe center-right moderates and a lot of independents and people that had never voted for Trump or would never vote for him again. So these are people that are not really part of the current Republican establishment base. Like they are not, they don't identify with Republicanism anymore. And the same exit polling was showing that Trump is actually getting Republican voters, like people that turn out to vote for Republicans. So even if Nikki Haley scrapes by and decides to keep going until Super Tuesday, which is I think in what, like a little less than a month, even if she does well in any of these, she's only doing well with the types of voters that are not Republicans anymore. She's not doing well with Republicans. She's doing well with Democrats that just wanted to support her independents and never Trump Republicans. And in a general election, those people might just go towards Biden. And I was watching some interviews on CNN where they were asking people about this and they're like, yeah, I'm a Republican, but I didn't like Trump. I didn't vote for him in 2020. I don't like Biden, but I'd probably vote for Biden again. Like if you're Nikki Haley, you kind of have to wonder, like, what is her lane going forward? And I don't particularly see much of a lane. I really don't. And again, if New Hampshire is a good illustration of kind of some of the remaining diversity, ideological diversity amongst the center and the right, Trump still won it. As of now, I mean, 62% reporting now. Trump still won it. So even if Nikki Haley gave him a run for it, this is probably the state he could have done the best in. And she still lost. And sorry, I said uh, he could have done the best in. I meant she could have done the best in. And of course, Nevada's coming up. It looks like Trump is a lock in Nevada. You have South Carolina, where, of course, she was the governor. But as I said yesterday, Lindsey Graham is totally backing Trump. Tim Scott is totally backing Trump. And again, like I said yesterday as well, 
Nikki Haley appointed Tim Scott, and he's still going with Trump. Now, there's a whole other conversation about Trump's growing xenophobia and racist attacks and birtherism once again against Nikki Haley, using her birth name and saying her parents weren't citizens when they had her here, so she can't even run. Like, his claim to fame that brought him into the political eye in, what, 2012 or 13 was birtherism against Obama, and now he's using it on Nikki Haley. I mean, the through line here is that these are non-white people, that he is attacking them because of their skin color and their heritage. And there's a, I could do a whole podcast, I think, on how having Tim Scott endorse Trump and defend Trump's statements and say they're just political attacks on Nikki Haley, it's really unfortunate that someone like Tim Scott an African-American is kind of becoming the defender of Trump's racist attacks because authoritarian movements, like like what I would argue Trump wants to do, they need people like that to say, no, no, this isn't racism. Look at me. I grew up in this country and there's no racism here. And Trump's just being political. Like, you need the Tim Scotts and now Doug Burgum saying the same thing. You need the sensible people to back you. And so that's why Nikki Haley has no hope in South Carolina is because it looks like the state's political apparatus is already behind Trump as well. And then, of course, you have Tim Scott kind of sugarcoating Trump's like worse xenophobic rhetoric as well at the same time, which I think is deplorable. And I've actually at times been a defender of Tim Scott because I actually have liked some of his criminal reform policies, his drug legalization policies in the Senate. But now he is trying to help retcon Trump's worst xenophobic tendencies. And I think that's really bad. And so I don't think Nikki Haley has a chance there as well. So the question here is, she said she's going to stay until Super Tuesday and keep fighting. If the money starts drying up and donors start backing out now after New Hampshire, does she stay? I think we'll have to see. My instinct is, is she stays longer than DeSantis does, but eventually she does drop out. Of course, it's a two-person race now, which I think gives her some reason to stay. But DeSantis also said he was going to stay until Super Tuesday. But as the money started drying up and he saw that there was no road ahead, they started, excuse me, they they started being realistic. And I could see Nikki Haley's team starting to do that with her. And she's ran a much more competent campaign. Still not perfect, but much more competent than Ron DeSantis. So we'll have to see what happens over the next few weeks. But I don't see her campaign like super long lived for this world either. And honestly, there's really not much else I can say about this at this time because I don't think this is surprising to any of us that have been following politics. No. Basically, the Republican Party is not the party it was prior to Trump. And Nikki Haley is trying to almost like blend the neocon movement with the MAGA movement and people don't really like it. So we'll move on, but it's, it's just going to be interesting to see. But Trump is now, he's, he's not officially the nominee, but he's, he pretty much should be called that at this point. All right, so for the rest of the episode, I want to talk about something that I've been meaning to talk about for quite some time. Finally prepared enough to do it. So starting off yesterday, I talked about how 2024 has been compared to the Wednesday or hump day of years, right? It's not Monday or Tuesday, but it's not the weekend yet. <clears throat> I said it was too er- just too early in general to say that, and I definitely stand by that still. However, what I've noticed about 2024 is that it's not going to be like 2023. 
And, of course, it's not going to be completely like 2023, but climate-wise, definitely not so. And a year ago, actually at this moment, I was in Casper, Wyoming, doing some runs while heading back from Illinois to Tahoe. Really cold and snowy, beautiful drive. And, the, and you know, by the time we arrived in Tahoe, a few days later, it already had just a gigantic amount of snow. Not quite historical like it was by the end of the season, but you catch my drift. And last year, we had more snow than we could handle. And this year, I was looking at the forecast for the coming week. It's going to be nearly 50 degrees in Truckee by Monday. And the Nordic Center that I work at once or twice a week and that I ski at, it's struggling just to keep some trails open. They're doing a great job, and it's been amazing still. But it's insane (laughs) that I've also been able to run on trails in January. Like today, I was out in a t-shirt, warm, (laughs) You know, I, I, I left for the run debating if I should bring my sweatshirt. And by the end, I'm like, thank, thank God I didn't do that. And anyways, I say all of this because I think we're seeing a pretty troubling trend involving the climate. It seems like it's just getting hard to predict what is next. And we are seeing kind of these non-linear trends that show how out of sync everything really is. Like, you can't just go, well, 2023 had X... So 2024 is going to bring us Y. It's just going to double. It's just going to go up in a linear model. No. We just can't really predict what's coming because we're seeing some sort of of growth that is either exponential or something else. (laughs) It's very troubling. But today I just wanted to talk about the climate and kind of this new public policy reality that could be a nightmare until we find better modeling to deal with it. And I think, it's, I think it's really important to remember that most experts predict that 2024 is going to be hotter than 2023. And we have to remember that 2023 was predicted to be hotter than 2022. And it was the hottest year ever recorded, at least in recorded history. And basically, we saw the hottest June, the hottest July in the Northern Hemisphere, etc. And that trend is likely to continue. And I think what makes it kind of troubling is that even though 2023 and probably 2024 will be the hottest years recorded, it also is showing us that there are a myriad of different ways that the years are going to be different and throw a lot of different curveballs at us that can't totally be predicted. And this makes it really hard to set public policy and emergency response measures to deal with what may be coming. There's a guy, Jason Smurden, who's a climate scientist at Columbia's Climate School, and he said that basically it's pointless to get nervous or excited about the hottest year on record because, in in quotes here, sorry, we're going to be doing this every year. (laughs) Isn't that nice and rosy? And so then you have Zoe Schlanger, who is a staff writer for The Atlantic, and she has a pretty interesting piece on this topic, and she interviews climate scientists and academics and writes about how there are kind of two interlinked concepts that we can sort of associate with the future of climate change. One of these two is what I mentioned a few minutes ago. It's kind of the non-linearity of this. She writes here in quotes, this is the idea that change will happen by factors of multiplication rather than addition. And I think this is something we're seeing in almost every aspect of our lives. And it's a good way to look at how climate change is impacting us. 
Of course, it's bleak. But it also highlights how bad things are getting and how much more difficult it may be to prevent more catastrophes if we're just looking at climate change using linear modeling. And so then she also talks about, though, the second point. And the second point the article brings up is the idea of something called a gray swan event, which I want to talk about for the majority of this. And basically, black swan events come out of nowhere and can't be predicted, and we kind of respond to them in real time. I would think of COVID and governmental responses, monetary responses, health responses to COVID. Those are black swan events. You just kind of react as you learn, right? People don't expect you to be ready for it. But gray swan events can be kind of seen as events that are possible in science, but they're considered rare in the real world. And they haven't really happened throughout our human history, so you can't model for them, you can't predict them, and you're not really ready for them. Because they're possible, but they're rare. And you don't, when you're, when you're looking at public policy, you don't look at the one in a hundred thousand event. You look at history and you look at the data you have and you try to respond based on what you have in front of you. I think the non-linear side makes a lot of sense because it's pretty easy to experience that in real time. I've covered the floods in Pakistan and India and in China and in China on the podcast before, they were just significantly worse than in previous years. And it's easy to just talk about those and say, yes, things are getting exponentially worse. Tiffany Shaw, who is a climate scientist at the University of Chicago, talks about examples of nonlinear events, talking about how, for example, when each, basically when the Earth's temperature goes up by one degree Celsius, it will increase the speed of winds by 2%. So there's no linear model to determine this. And we are seeing this in real time with the intensity of storms, right? We are seeing storms get worse, snow disappear exponentially in parts of the world as tropical storms are also getting worse in other parts of the world as well. That is not really something particularly difficult to comprehend, if you understand what I'm trying to say here. But either way, I'm more interested in gray swan events. As I'm sure you guys are aware by now, I am kind of interested in the intersection between politics, public policy, and economics, or political economy, whatever you want to say. And I really think that gray swan events can be a unique challenge for people that are working in urban development, local government, emergency response networks, and more, uh, sustainability, housing, whatever, whatever all, of, all of those points can bring to you. And in my public policy master's program, I did end up writing my dissertation on Hurricane Sandy, the siloization, how basically the Defense Department and the National Guard were able to respond fairly well, but you saw kind of a breakdown in the federal, state, and military complex in doing so. And I talk about also Hurricane Katrina, 9-11, and how some of these complex, wicked problems lead to the failures in our system to respond to them. And I actually think that adapting is key, but gray swan events can make it sometimes hard to use analytics to do so. So you're going to have to rely on the politics 
and just the nature of individuals, which can be good or bad depending where you live. And I'll kind of argue that as we go here. But I worry that climate change and these gray swan events could just make analytics and recommendations and public policy hard to do. So back to that scientist named Shaw from the University of Chicago that I mentioned earlier. She notes that black swan events are are just unpredictable and unforeseeable. But the problem with gray swan events is that they can actually be basically a scientist or public policymaker's nightmare. The Atlantic article that interviews her notes and quotes, scientists will start to observe things that they can foresee based on physics, but they haven't appeared in the historical record before. The article then talks about how this is hard for governments because typical public policymaking is data-driven and based on experience and, prep and preparation. And if you don't have a historical record or past experience with something like these new random events that have only been proven to exist in a lab, it could be a mess. And I can give you guys a couple of examples from the last three years. The main one I think about is the heat wave in the Pacific Northwest. I believe it happened in the summer of 2021. And weather reports did obviously predict a heat wave, but they didn't really predict what was to come. And this heat wave was extreme and led to unprecedented issues for the, North, the Pacific Northwest, which is just a part of the country that wasn't ready for this. Basically, they got a historic heat wave, an unprecedented heat wave in a place that wasn't ready for it, and it kind of created a nightmare scenario. So, of course, luckily, Portland is in a wealthy country. Oregon is not exactly a struggling state compared to metrics of other states, for example. And just imagine if this happened in a developing country with just atrocious infrastructure or sectarianism or political infighting. Just it would be so much worse. And anyways, in Portland, the first problem was that they had the lowest rates of air conditioning in the country because, of course, you just don't think you need it. And people were unprepared for the heat that came. You also had cable lines melting, lack of power, streets literally crumbling, and hundreds of people died, which is insane for Portland in the summer. And when you have never seen anything like this, policymaking is screwed. It's fucked. Excuse my language. I got my one F word out of the way. But that's a gray swan event. Also, the forest fires in Canada last year can be seen as a gray swan event as well. Same with the heat waves in Portugal and Spain last year. The record heat in the UK like two years ago. People were not told to have AC units. Buildings were not coded to have them because the modeling just never thought it was an issue and policymakers inside of the UK had bigger issues to worry about than this unprecedented event. And I think the most fascinating but troubling part about all of this is that we just don't have the models to do much about this. And usually you rely on statistical models and even machine learning, but this only works if you have the data, if you have historical records, past events. That's how you predict ones. That's how you make policy-based recommendations. And I'm, I'm not going to pretend how all of this works. And I'm not going to pretend to know exactly how we go forward. But we're kind of in a weird science fiction scenario here where we need to be even more reactive and more predictive to events that we don't have past experiences to even know that are happening. <sighs> you can probably hear me exhaling 
a deep one here because it's, it's a really huge conundrum here. And I would also think that you will find some countries and regions that go all in on this, trying to basically create scenarios. Like, you know how the military plays war games and runs basically different war game-based models to see what could happen and what might not happen? I think you see some countries throwing in a lot of their state resources to do this. And they would probably put them into the two main pillars of climate policy, which is mitigation and adaptation. And I read an interesting piece in the annual review of, of environment and resources out of the University of Washington in Seattle. And the piece is called Politics of Climate Change Adaptation. And I think the authors bring up an interesting point that breaks down the differences and complexities of mitigation versus adaptation. And these are going to be even more important as we get into this weird gray swan era. And they write here in quotes in one section of the paper, Mitigation faces collective action issues because its costs are focused on specific locations and actors, but benefits are global and non-excludable. And I think that is very true. Is like, it's hard for the world to focus, sorry, focus, focus on what happened in Portland, for example, or what happened in the Canadian fires or what happened in the UK or what happened in the Pakistani droughts because the world doesn't want to get into a collective action against something that only affects and impacts different sections of the world. There becomes just kind of a selfish dilemma and an understandable selfish dilemma when you add politics into this. And the writers of Politics of Climate Change Adaptation, they think that mitigation to deal with future climate crises, and I would assume Grace Swan moments, is not through mitigation because you do have the collective action problem. They think that adaptation is better than mitigation because it can more focus on local benefits and help governments focus their efforts. But then you get into another conundrum that is hard to beat as well. The authors also note that adaptation is basically politics on a local level and a political side of combating climate change. They write in another part of this piece, in quotes here, we suggest conceptualizing adaptation as politics because adaptation speaks to issues of power, conflicting policy preferences, resource allocation, and administrative tensions. And this is all interesting to me personally because, again, this gets into what my dissertation was on. You're kind of seeing a conflict between old methods of disaster management that try to be localized and siloed that also at the same time have to adapt to deal with modern issues like climate change that you also have to explain not only to your local constituencies, but to a general base and to the world at large, while also not trying to fall for the collective action problem that mitigation usually leads to. And this gets really complicated when you don't have precedent for this. And so isn't that fun? <laughs> isn't that fun? And I would think on an international scale at the same time, you also may have parts of the world that are just unable to properly prepare for these disasters so you might have mitigation and or adaptation happening mainly in wealthier countries, but some of these countries may still struggle to deal with this. And also you have to look at the regionalization of politics and how the collective action problem can also be 
mobilized for partisan reasons. And you could see states like California spend a lot of their funds on adaptation or localized mitigation. You could also see Texas maybe downplay the threat. It's going to be an interesting world. That would be my general takeaway from this. But you are seeing kind of the struggle here is because you do need local response, but you also need an academic infrastructure that is willing to study these issues and be able to fight against them. And if you're having more and more Grace Swan moments, local municipalities, state municipalities might not be able to prepare for them. So then you do almost need a larger government, like the national government, being able to allocate resources to mitigate climate on a national level while also like focusing on specific ones. And so I guess I don't have too much more to say on this, but I see this becoming a pretty damn complicated issue as we go forward because Gray Swan events are kind of like the hindsight is 2020 dilemma, where once they happen, you can say, oh yeah, we could have foreseen that if we ran different models. So there's always going to be blame to throw around. But then you really can't predict them with the systems we have right now. So I think we do need more adaptation measure, measures, but we also need to basically depolarize. I don't know if that's particularly a word, but we need to depolarize our national politics so that we understand that there are going to be regional issues that are different. Like California and Florida are going to have different climate emergencies. But we need a government that's ready to respond to either one of those and start modeling why they happened and how to respond if we're looking at non-linear climate change along with gray swan events so yes we're, let's end with that anyways let me know your thoughts a lot to talk about tomorrow i haven't touched on israel and palestine in a while in, in, in a while so that's probably where we'll dive into tomorrow anyways i'm exhausted been a busy day i gotta get out of here have a great night as always you can find me on apple podcasts itunes spotify podbean you guys know the rest have a great night. Adios.